millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. My podcasts often deal with distressing situations which are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. Some of what I discuss may trigger uncomfortable emotions. If that does occur, please reach out to Lifeline, Beyond Blue or any other support service or person you feel comfortable with. Hello, I'm Narelle Fraser. I was a cop with Victoria Police for 27 years, 15 of those as a detective, having dealt with all types of crime from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. I witnessed the effect crime has on all those involved and became one of those victims myself in 2012 when I was diagnosed with PTSD. However, out of adversity comes other opportunities like this my own podcast. I still pinch myself, but thanks for listening and coming with me as we explore the human side and impact of crime. You know, evil comes in many varied formats and the person that I was looking at saponifies evil and that's what she was. She was absolute evil. Today's podcast relates to cruelty to children and I advise listeners to tread with caution. If at any time you feel uncomfortable, we'll just turn it off. There's plenty more of my podcasts coming to listen to. And as usual, as I've said before, if you do find yourself affected by this podcast, seek the comfort of your friends, your family or telephone support services available including Lifeline and Beyond Blue. Quote, she can rot in hell, unquote. Lex de Man doesn't hold back on his thoughts about Anne Hamilton Byrne, the leader and co-founder of a cult dubbed The Family, who lived right under the nose of holidaymakers and members of the tight-knit Lake Eildon community in country Victoria. From the outside, it was a plain double-storey home on a beautiful lake surrounded by bush, kangaroos and kookaburras. But inside, Lex and his fellow investigators found children who'd been taken from their mothers. They'd been beaten. They'd been given the drug LSD. They'd been dressed the same. They'd been given the same short, bob-style blonde haircuts. And they'd often been locked in a tiny secret room underground. Lex was a detective senior sergeant with Victoria Police on what was called Operation Forest Task Force, 
which investigated Anne Hamilton Byrne for crimes committed upon these children. And he chased her after she fled overseas. He arrested her and brought her home to face justice. Her penalty for these horrendous crimes against our most vulnerable, a $5,000 fine. Never spent a day in jail, and she never will, because she died last year. This is a story of incredible courage and resilience by the children, but also the dogged determination of Lex and his fellow investigators. So thanks for your time today, Lex. Thank you, Nora. Yes, that's uh, quite a um, an investigation you're involved in, uh, Lex. And look, I suppose I'd start off with saying that investigating or dealing with anything to do with sad, hurt, abused, violated cruelty to children is tough. And we will delve into that investigation in a minute. But first, how did an investigation like this affect you at the time, Lex? Oh, look, um I think prior to when I first got to know about this alleged cult, and then as I I got into more and more of the business over the over the issue near on five years that I was involved with, um, you know, it had it had an effect on not only myself but um, all the police investigators and police that have been involved and have been touched by uh, by the young by these young people. You know those those uh, the, the survivors. Um, you, you would be human if you didn't uh, feel um, you know some of the pain that they uh, that they've gone through. What were the ages of the children, Lex? Oh, when I first got, got to know the children in nineteen eighty nine after nineteen eighty seven after they'd been released months earlier, I got to know start to know them in around December nineteen eighty seven uh, after they'd been released. Um, by local uh, Blackburn community policing uh, members and the Australian Federal Police who actually conducted the raid at Ilden in August of 1987. Yep. Um, you know, they're in, their, they're in their, um, their late to early teens. Oh, gee. Um, and as I said, we will go into that in a minute, but um, how have you dealt with it since? And the reason I ask that is... Um, I've said many times, working with children uh, is a very, very difficult job and it has an effect on you. So I'm just wondering how you have dealt with it since. Oh, look, um, you know, I, I, I still keep in, in um, some contact, some regular or non-regular contact with um, uh, some of, the, um, some of the, the young people that I came to know who uh, are commonly referred to as the children. Of course, now they're now they're adults in their own own right, and some have got their own families. But um, it, it doesn't leave you. It never does leave you because you know um, when you sit down and you hear the um, the stories from from uh, these young people, what they went through, the deception that had been had been uh, um, undertaken. Um, towards them to give them a false sense of identity and who their parents were and what their early lives were like and what society was like um, was um, was terrible. It was horrendous. So, um, you know, I for many many years I, I wouldn't I couldn't go up to I wouldn't go up to the Mount Dandenong area after um, after everything had been finished and 
and um, ironically, many years later, I became in charge of the areas uh, around Mount Danong and another organisation. But um, yeah, it does have a. There's no doubt it has a, a psychological effect on all investigators, um, you know, as much as it does on on. Uh, on the victims, maybe not so much, but certainly does have an impact. And you know, as a as a uh, police officer, when you investigate these types of crimes, um, you wouldn't be human, as I said, if it didn't affect you. And um, it's not one of those things where you can just uh, knock off at night time and go home and forget about it. Lose with you for the rest of your life. Yeah. I... <laughs> Yes, I know exactly what you mean. And so, Lex, you just said then uh, that you couldn't go up to the Dandenongs. Do you go up there now? And how do you feel when you, if you do go up there? Oh, look, every time I go up to Dandenong, of course, you know, uh, I drive along certain roads and so forth. Of course, I always remember being there with members of the team or events that I know of what, what occurred uh, up around the, you know, the Olinda, the Olinda, Fernie Creek area and so forth. Um, you just you just got to deal with it now. You know, I've had the same with other locations where you know I've been involved in in incidents. You know, and uh, they never leave your mind. No, they don't. And just for the listeners that don't know the Dandenongs, the area you're talking about, it is such a beautiful part of Victoria. Um, it is just beautiful bush, um, really uh, virgin forest. It is just so lovely and people go up there all the time, don't they, for picnics and day trips and whatever. It really is a beautiful part of Melbourne. But unfortunately, from what you're saying, um, and I understand completely, you go up there and it's not a beautiful part of uh, Victoria for you. It brings back uh, terrible, terrible memories. But Anyway, so can we can we go back and can you take us through your involvement in the investigation um, of this woman? And maybe we could start. You just said then that in 1987, um, the Feds uh, did a raid on on the family. So can you just tell us how that all began and what happened from there? Oh, look, um, just prior to August '87. Uh, one of the children, one of the one of the girls, um, if I can use the inverted commas, escaped from the property at uh, Lake Hilton, and uh, the property was was known in the cult as Up Top, and um, she escaped and uh, she went to the local police, and um, eventually the uh, the then in 1987, of course, in Victoria Police, there was a a uh, police women's division called the Community Policing Squad, and the uh, the district squad at Blackburn, which is in Melbourne's east and just at the foothills of Mount Dandenong, um, they uh, looked at the allegations that uh, this uh, this young girl had told police. What the very strange stories about life up there, and that there were a number of children there, and that there were uh, people called aunties uh, who would go up there and on a fortnightly basis, rotating basis, and care for the group. And they were all the children of Anne and William Hamilton Byrne. And um, so through their investigation and with the assistance of the Australian Federal Police, they conducted a raid in August 1987 and the children were removed. Uh, from that 
uh, location and and uh, Hamilton burned by then, having got wind of the police uh, interests in the property, she'd fled overseas. But her husband, uh, William Hamilton Byrne, who was in actual fact her second husband, uh, he was still in Australia. So the children went, were taken to the children's court, given protection, uh, and from there never returned, in essence, to the cult. Um, and then the Blackburn Community Policing Squad members, uh, they started to look further into uh, the activities of the cult. Um, and then, uh, which you know, I, I wasn't aware of any of this information until my involvement when it started in December 1987. Um, would you believe as an arson squad uh, detective when I attended a school fire in uh, Monbulk, which is a small community uh, within the Mount Dandenong Ranges. And uh, I was uh, I went there uh, one morning with uh, uh, my uh, partner who we were the on-call duty team from the arson squad at the time and we went along with this, uh, just as a sort of school fire in one of the classrooms at uh, at the Mumbolt Primary School. And then from there, um, <clears throat> when you go to a fire such as a school fire, you look for what's called the point of origin, as you do with all fires. And um, in a school at Threesley, uh, off, it's often that the point of origin is in a classroom and that points towards a, to some form of you know, vendetta or vengeance against somebody in the classroom and and uh, uh, your initial thought is always about, well, who's the teacher that uses the room? And then we found out through the discussions and investigations on the day that there was a young boy who was a student had been a student at the school uh, and in that classroom who had um, some form of fascination with the teacher. So I then, we then spoke with the local uh, police at Mumbok, the local uniformed police at Mumbok. It's a beautiful little community country village, if I can put it that way. Yeah. I, think it's, I think there was about you know, three or four members stationed, police members stationed at Mumbok. And one of them um, told me about this story about this cult. And I'd never heard of the, of the the family, is what the cult's name was before, and it was a pretty bizarre story, to be quite honest. He then introduced me to the local police doctor from the district um, who had been involved actually in the raids in August 87 and had gone along as part of the medical assistance to the police who were conducting the raid because of, there were allegedly children involved that they had found. And the police doctor, he, uh, he, told, me the, he told me the story about the cult and so forth and I actually met the eldest girl um, the following day who was actually... Um, the police doctor and his wife were were um, were hosting at their home at the time, and uh, so I met I met uh, I met the girl Sarah. Yeah, it was just something striking about the way that she appeared, the way she looked, obviously distrusting. And when I got more into the story and so forth, um, it was a complete bizarre story. What I was being told that the children um, had their hair, you know peroxide blonde, many of them, um, that um, the children were not the natural children of Anna William Hamilton Byrne, uh, that some of the children had been stolen from birth, 
And when throughout the investigation, when I would tell people this story, often they would look at me and uh, as if you know you're mad, you're some form of you know <laughs> you, you're going nuts. These things don't happen. All these things yeah. do happen, and they did happen. And so um, after about three months of investigating the school fire and maintaining an interest with regards to the, the cult, um, I, I approached my then boss and told him about the cult and which we should look into doing more work to support the local community police squad at Blackburn because in those days, you've got to remember, this is in the late 80s, um, mm-hmm. uh, child abuse was um, something that was dealt with by community services. It wasn't... Um, dealt with by police. Uh, police didn't even really investigate these type of things. It's a child welfare matter. Um, well, I, I I felt very different about it because it was quite clear to me that uh, you know there were allegations of some horrendous, horrendous crimes. But not only that, but apparently, you know, it was alleged at the time that many of these children had been stolen from birth. So it had to be looked at. And unfortunately, with the attitude in those days across government departments, including police department, it was a matter of, well, just drop it because that's someone else's issue. It's not a policing issue and so forth. So as part of the arson squad, uh, we, uh, of course, we dropped it, but I kept a very strong interest in it and kept in contact with uh, the police members from Blackburn Community Policing Squad and and just and with the police doctor and just kept chipping away until in June 1989. I had the opportunity to review some of the reports that had been put together that I knew were being put together by the Blackburn CP, uh, Community Policing Squad and I made a recommendation to the local district chief inspector that uh, did the report and that ended up in the drug squad. And I used a couple of pretty key phrases deliberately um, to make sure that something was done and that was charges, statements in the report such as allegations of the administration of uh, LSD to children, the alleged um, uh, theft of children from birth from their mothers um, and the alleged um, maltreatment of children. So something had to be done. You couldn't ignore those statements, could you? I don't know anybody no, that could. No, the department, well, they couldn't then because I put it, someone finally put it in writing. Yeah. And so it was on the record. So something had to be done. Yep. So um, that went in after the June and, and then in uh, the November of 1989, I got a phone call in the last few weeks of November from the Detective Chief Inspector of the Drug Squad where the file had ended up because I'd used the words administration of hallucinogenic drugs, being LSD. Of course, yes. And um, so I got called to his office at the old Russell Street Police Complex, which was in their head uh, building for detectives within Victoria Police. So I went and uh, met with him and he, he said to me, um, this is this is uh, what we're going to do about it. Uh, you're going to be on it. Uh, I said, right, Great. we're going to put uh, yourself with or we'll give you a senior sergeant. I was a uniform sergeant at Russell Street then, so I was seconded from the, the Russell Street police station to this task force with the detective senior sergeant and four detective senior constables and you're the sergeant. And you've got 12 weeks to clean it up, clean up the, the cult and get on with it. 
So um, first week of December 1989, um, I walked into a, I could only describe really like a closet, which was a very small room in the drug squad area. And there were four desks for six people, four, four firing cabinets for six people, no, no, no typewriters, four chairs, and no vehicle. And we, none of us knew each other. And we had 12 weeks to clean this up. So, can I, can I, um, can I just go back there, Lex? You just said then no typewriters. So, but that's how you did your police work. You, you typed. Uh, reports, you typed everything. Yeah, in those days, yeah. of course, the late, the late 80s, it was computers. Computers were just being used in those early days for simple word processing by the, by, by some of the senior officers in Victoria Police. Rudimentary computer system uh, with some of the record keeping and so forth. But, you know, when you wanted to find a criminal's record, you still had to go and do a manual paper search was done for you and you got the paper record, there was nothing online and there was no mobile phones in those days. There was no computers in those days. So it was what I suppose many people today would call good old-fashioned policing where, you know, your first starting point was the phone book and then from there you just uh, had to work your, work your way through. Yeah, so no, comp- no, no, uh, no, no typewriters. So we started the investigation. And then we started to meet uh, uh, more of the children. The team met more of the children because I've met some of them. And from there, we then started taking statements from the children. And uh, when you take the statements from these young people, that, that, that they're not just like, you know, if someone's had a motor car accident or so forth. It took a lot of time and it, and it took quite a lot of compassion for these statements to be taken and days and sometimes weeks because they were living uh, uh, things that had happened to them. Um, and in part, uh, this was new to them because you know, many of them had gone, become uh, into the sect when they were babies. They knew nothing different. Now, we're talking about uh, you know, young people who thought that they had a twin or I had a triplet or that and that Anne and William Hamilton Byrne were their parents when in actual fact they weren't. So at a very, you know, in their teenage years, they're starting to learn more about their true identity and so forth. And then over the number of years, so, um, a number of them met their natural mothers through, through you know, the work by the police and, and in some cases fathers and... You know, you, you imagine that as a young teenager finding out that the person you thought were your parents are after fact not your parents, that you were given up or that you were taken at birth, um, it would have a, a significant impact on you. So, so you know, um, it was, at a, it was uh, a pretty uh, tough time uh, through that period. And I recall, I think it was in early 1990, um, somehow, uh, the issue of Operation Forest, which was the name of the task force, and the lack of resourcing, uh, was actually raised in the Victorian Parliament by the opposition police minister, um, the opposition spokesperson. I have no idea how that ended up in Parliament, but shortly, shortly after that, uh, we, were, we, we had a lot of resources thrown our way, and, and we actually started to 
really get some uh, some traction on, on the investigation. Can I just go back there a bit, Lex? I don't know how you would get how you would build rapport with a teenager uh, that has. Um, as you say, it's hard enough being a teenager, let alone finding out all this information. You must have had unbelievable compassion, um, not empathy because you've never been in that position, but you would have had to have been very, very good at building rapport with these kids. Yeah, I, I suppose, you know, it, um, all, the, all the investigators on the team, uh, you know, there was the six of us initially, on the team, and, and we were led by you know a person that um, is no no longer sadly with us. But um, I didn't know him really when we started, but I came to um, learn a lot and respect him a lot. And that was Peter Spence, who was um, the detective senior sergeant in charge, and uh, you know he had great compassion for a very tall, solid man. Great compassion for these kids and. Uh, along with myself and the other uh, the other members, the other four investigators, um, you know, we all um, understood that this was not a normal investigation. And, and you know, and I'd, I'd briefed them all at, when we first started off, and I remember a number of them must have looked at me and said, "This is crazy. What am I doing here? Like <laughs> these things just don't happen." But yeah. you know they, you know the initial team, and I say the initial team because the team changed over the years and over the four and a half year life of Operation Forest, um, I was the only one that was there at the start, and at the end the team changed during that period. Um, but yeah, they were very compassionate investigators, and and um, you know I always take my hat off to to all of those members that were on the team because it, it did have a deep, profound effect on the police involved and a number of them themselves, uh, when they uh, they left the task force, they had their own psychological issues that they had to be treated for. And, and it was, you know, uh, we'd never been through, I don't think anyone in Vipol had ever really looked into the effect of, you know, what, this woman had done on these children that then, of course, uh, affected the investigators. And and moving forward many years, you know, when I got the phone call from the FBI that they'd located her and arrested her, uh, I lost it. I lost it for about 10 minutes. I threw chairs and tables over in the mess room at the at where we were then located and broke down. And uh, that was the four and a half years of angst, I suppose, and knowledge that boiled over uh, and all came to a head. Yeah, so, you know, we're up and running in the task force and then uh, our big breakthrough came when a document was located that was signed by a solicitor who was a member of the cult. But I thought before I go there, I'd just give a quick overview of the cult, uh, if you like. Yes, please. So the family was led, as I mentioned before, by a woman, Anne Hamilton Byrne, and it really started in the in the early 1960s when a physicist who was the master of Queen's College, he was an English an English fellow who had been employed by the, the Melbourne University as the master of Queen's College, which is uh, one of the colleges at Melbourne University. And the master of Queen's College, from my understanding, is... Uh, equates to the one of the top academic positions in the state of Victoria. 
And um, he met Anne Hamilton Byrne one day, or Anne, Anne Byrne as she was, uh, one day at a afternoon tea at his house in the University of Melbourne where, where he and his wife resided. And Dr. Rainer Johnson was the gentleman's name and he was interested in Christianity and the impacts of Eastern mythology. Now, when your listeners are listening to this, um, you've got to reassure them, Narelle, that I'm not nuts because this is a bizarre story. <laughs> so, it's <is> not nuts. <laughs> so when, when, uh, when, Anne and I, when Anne is seen by, by Rainer, he becomes infatuated with Anne and then says that he has seen Jesus Christ, the Messiah, recreated in the female form. He has seen the Messiah. And so Anne, being very cunning, then used that and became very good friends with Dr. Rona Johnson. You've got to remember, and in those days, in the 60s, only 3% of the top Victorian students went to university. And they became, you know, our doctors, our judges, our lawyers, our professional medical workers, you know, um, top architects and so forth. They were the top echelons of society. You've also got to remember that in those days, uh, it's not like we talk about post-traumatic stress or mental illness as we do today quite freely. In those days, if you were in a profession like you're a member of the, of the, of, uh, of the law institute, you're a barrister, you're a judge, you're a solicitor, you're an architect, you're a nurse, um, you never told anybody if you suffered from mental illness. Uh, because you would be removed from your profession. These things just didn't happen. You know, it didn't happen in, you know, with those that were teaching and you know, principals of schools and so forth. So Anne came to, to know a woman who owned a private psychiatric hospital in Normandy Road Q called, uh, called New Haven. And her name was Joan Villamick. And Joan became a disciple, if I can put that way, of... Uh, Anne Hamilton Byrne, and uh, Anne had a nursing background herself. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. So in professionals in society, uh, through introductions by Raina Johnson and, and two psychiatrists, Howard Whitaker and John McKay, um, they would go to um, New Haven in Kew for private treatment um, so that nobody in society knew it was a private registered psychiatric hospital. And to, uh, I'm conscious of the time, but an example of how the recruiting happened was that professionals were going there into the hospital, this private hospital for treatment. The treatment would be the administration of the hallucinogenic drug LSD, which was a legal drug at that time by licence for a small number of psychiatrists to use to treat mental illness. Lo and behold, Whitaker and McKay were authorised by the health department to use it. So if you can picture this, that you're in a darkened room, you're lying on a bed in the night, no lights on, and the door opens of your room. You're in the hospital to get some treatment. You've had an LSD inject, injected, and there is this figure that appears in the doorway with a bright light behind her and with this very glowing through the light smoke, which was actually dry ice in a bucket, and this figure is in a white flowing gown. And you're told that you're seeing the Messiah, Jesus Christ, reincarnated in the female form. And that's how people were suckered in, in essence. And uh, up until her death, a number of her older followers still believed that she was, in, in fact, Jesus Christ. Boy, uh, was that Anne coming through the door with the white? Um, yeah, Anne through the door. That was Anne. Oh my goodness! Yeah. You're right, Lex. You've, you've really, you've really got to think. Oh my God, is <laughs> you're right. No, I'm not it's, a nut. I'm not a nut. I know you're not. A, well, I'm <laughs> starting to wonder. <laughs> no, so, I know that. <laughs> so, so then, then the cult formed. The cult was based at Ferny, Ferny Creek in the Mount Danyong area. What would that be? You know. 25, 30 kilometres to the east of the Melbourne um, Central Business District in the mountains. Beautiful areas, you said at the start. Uh, beautiful, leafy, green, uh, rainforesty type countryside, magnificent mountain. You know, I, 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 I describe, I explain to people about Mount Dandenong if they've never been to Melbourne. If you, if you, if you know Hong Kong Island, 
and you remove all the buildings off Hong Kong Island, you're basically looking at Mount Dandenong. Really, it's just such a such a beautiful beautiful part of Melbourne. Yeah. So they uh, they then uh, the cult um, uh, built a lodge a chapel uh, called Santa Keaton Lodge uh, in the in the Ferny Creek area. There was a street in Ferny Creek called Victoria Grove where every house in the street was owned by the cult except for one. And never paid for anything. Her followers paid for everything. Mm-hmm. And her followers would gather every week at the chapel and hear a sermon from Anne or if she was overseas, as she was often overseas, mm-hmm. they would sit there and listen to tape recordings from Anne. The followers would have a, a room in their homes called the Blue Room that had a, 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 blue, a blue stone on a small table uh, with the crucifix and a picture of Anne next to the crucifix, and that's where they would God. pray to, to Anne as Jesus Christ. So the cult then, over a number of years, through the ability to have doctors, social workers, nursing, nurses involved, started to acquire children. And um, an example, one example, was a child was born and the attending doctor and nurses were all cult members. Social worker organised paperwork was a cult member, and the child was handed to Anne Hamilton Byrne. And the child was taken away, and the child's uh, the child never actually met his mother because uh, she had passed by the time that the truth had come out. But certainly had reconnected with some of the family members. Um, you know, and um, that happened. Uh, you know, we knew of thirteen children, and Anne said in an interview with. Um, a current affair in the 1980s that uh, 21 young people, I think it was 21, 27 young people had gone through our hands. Uh, and there were a lot of cult young children who weren't actually classified as Hamilton Burn children but were um, children of cult members and sect members. And then Anne just acquired all these children. They were, they were housed, kept at Eildon, on, on this beautiful rural property, small rural farmhouse property, um, timber home at, at, on the banks of Lake Eildon, which is about two and a half hours uh, northeast of Melbourne. And that's where they were raised. They were educated there. Um, one of the cult members was a principal at a, a secondary school in Melbourne, and he would go up every weekend and set the curriculum for the week and check the schooling. And um, the aunties, there was always one of two aunties at the property. Uh, they would uh, care for the children, if I can put that loosely. Care in some aspects was beatings, dunkings where they, their heads were placed in buckets of water when they when it was perceived that they'd played up. And Anne required that the aunties paid her, or well, they worked two weeks up at the, up at the property and then two weeks um, in their profession and nursing in hospitals in Melbourne. And while they did that in Melbourne, that helped pay for the food that they had to buy for the children to uh, please Anne. And, um, yeah, I was very fortunate to speak with one of the aunties, meaning uh, uh, it's part of the investigation uh, in the United Kingdom with one of the female detectives. So that just gives you an overview, Norelle of the cult and uh, all these children, you know, they didn't know what birthdays were, they didn't know what Christmas was, uh, they were totally secreted there and the cult has a 
has a saying, unseen, unknown, unheard. And yeah, I've got to, I got to know quite a number of the children, obviously, and got to know a number of the children very well uh, and still keep connected today, you know, and, uh, you know, it's impressive. And I just, you know, there's one young young fellow, I'm not so young, he's, he's well now, truly in his 40s, uh, Ben, Ben Shenton, uh, mm. who, you know, he's just one example of, uh, of someone that's gone through horrific um, circumstances in his early life that's been able to pull everything together and establish a fantastic family in his own career. Um, yeah, so that, that was the cult. And then in, as part of the task force, um, the breakthrough for us came, as I mentioned, about a statutory declaration that had been falsely signed by a lawyer who was actually a cult member a fellow by the name of Peter Kibbe and Peter Spence had located this document amongst the files that we had been able to unearth as part of the false adoption process that they did with the Victorian authorities and also New South Wales and New Zealand authorities. And then we found out that Peter had, just prior to the task force starting in December 89, had a big dispute a number of months earlier with Anne and he'd left the cult. And he was working in a little country lawyer's law practice in Camperdown in Western Victoria. So on Monday morning, Peter and myself went to Camperdown, uh, which had about three hours west of Melbourne, a beautiful little country area. And we deliberately um, we deliberately just walked up the street. So in the little community, people go, oh, who are these two people dressed in suits? She's a must look like coppers. <laughs> and we walked yeah. in with the uh, law firm. We walked past the receptionist, walked straight into the office, and he was with a client, said, uh, Peter Kibbe, introduced ourselves, put the handcuffs on him, told him he was under arrest for perjury, marched him out of the, of the lawyer's office into the main street. We walked him up one side of the street, across the road, walked back down the other side oh, of the street. Oh, beautiful. The police, station was nearly, the police station was nearly opposite the uh, lawyer's office, but, of course, we wanted to make sure that we didn't to road illegally, Narell. <laughs> and then we took him into the police station. We, we interviewed him for perjury on the document, the statutory declaration, and uh, said to him there were two ways that it could be dealt with. Um, if he assisted us with our inquiries, we would be favourable in, um, um, in speaking on his behalf with regards to the charges before the court. And he's the only person I've ever only offender I've ever hopped in the witness box to give character evidence for uh, when he appeared in the county court on perjury. That was some years later. So about a week after the arrest and he was bailed, and of course he couldn't work in Camperdown anymore, he went back home to his uh, wife who was also uh, at that stage in the culprit. She had left as well and such a lovely lady with uh, her own horrific story, what had happened to their two boys in the cult. One had taken his life and the other one who is still around today is you can still see the scars with him. So about a week later, Peter Kibbe rang out of the office and he said, I'd like to have a chat with you. So I went up, saw Peter Kibbe with Peter and then a short, about a week later, I started taking a 365-page handwritten statement <gasps> of Peter that took three months and with a whole range of uh, birth adoption documents, property documents and so forth, and he spilt the beans on Anne. I'm just thinking of myself, uh, Lex, 
a 365-page handwritten statement. I think the most I have ever taken might be, I don't know, 30. Like like that, it just, that just, I can't get my head around that. But when you went in and handcuffed him and interviewed him, did he spill the beans then? Or like I know he no. spilled the beans the next no, couple of weeks. Very, but- he was quite obviously, he was very, quite obviously he was very spiteful about Anne. Um, he didn't want to say much about the document we had. Uh, and Peter, Peter himself was a victim, um, even though he'd been the lawyer for Anne and he'd, he'd arranged many of the false adoptions, he'd arranged many of the, the false bringing together of two of the children to become twins and then the three of the children to become triplets. Oh. Uh, like, you know, one case, Anne registered uh, twins with um, New Zealand and twins with uh, New South Wales authorities. New Zealand one's interesting because Anne wrote back some years later with signed documents by Peter Kibbe herself and cult members who were doctors to say, and said to the New Zealand authorities, look, um, when I gave birth to the twins, I actually had three. I didn't have two. I forgot to tell you about the third one. So can you reissue the birth certificates for triplets? And don't tell me they did. They did, yeah, because, you know, these are official documents signed by eminent people in society, lawyers and doctors, they would never lie. Um, but there was the lie. And how Peter became involved was Peter was one of those professionals that went to New Haven for treatment. Oh, yeah. Yep. Um, and, uh, Peter suffered from uh, obsessive compulsive disorder of cleanliness. So it would take Peter two to three hours to have a shower each day. Um, he was just, he had a, a, a psychiatric uh, illness of obsessive compulsive disorder. And Anne, at some stage with Peter, actually arranged a lichotomy for Peter, which is surgery on the brain through the eye, uh, to try and, uh, uh, and assist Peter's illness, and that never worked. Uh, and Peter was, uh, even when I interviewed him, he was obviously still suffering from it. And, um, it took a long time before I actually shook hands with Peter. I um, yeah. Or Peter became comfortable in the environment that he was because he was just paranoid about dirt and, um, you know, always washing and so forth. So I, I got to know Peter rather well and, and really felt for Peter. So through Peter's evidence and his statement and the documents, we were able to then uh, put together charges of perjury on falsification of documents for Anne and William Hamilton Byrne. Sadly, with the treatment, the ill treatment of the children, I should say the alleged ill treatment of the children because they've never been before a court of law, we were never able to actually charge Anne or William with any of those types of offences because of the concern of the impact of giving evidence in the, in the courts by the children. The issue of coercion, where the girl, where the children had all uh, lived together, or could have been put forward by the defence that you know they all made the story up, which they didn't. Uh, but we also charged a number of cult members through the investigation with some social security fraud and so forth. But the main players were Anne, and there was. Um, I remember when the task force started off, there was a journalist who said to us, "You know, if you find her, you'll never charge her." If you charge her, you'll never get her back before the courts. And if you get her back before the courts, you'll never get a conviction. So it was a bit of a challenge put out to us. And uh, to me personally, uh, that was a bit like, okay, it's a bit of a challenge. Yeah. A bit like a dog, like a bone. <laughs> and um, 
So after we issued the the charges for Anne and William on the extradition warrant uh, on the on the um, on the perjury, we then sought extradition warrants because we believed that they were overseas and we didn't know where they were, of course. And you got to remember, this is in the early nineties now, where te- uh, technology had started to come into vogue. You know, computers, but they weren't the high tech computers today, and they you know, mobile phones were in their infancy. So um, eventually I became the senior investigator. Peter Spence had uh, left the task force. There had been changes of personnel for for various reasons. And, um, you know, um, I'll never forget Peter. He was just amazing. A lot of the success of Forrest can go to the way that he initially established it in those early days in inquiries. So we, um, with the team, the small, still a small team, and through the assistance of Sarah, who was the eldest, the older girl, uh, and Sarah had had, um, had qualified in medicine herself at Melbourne University after she was released, Sarah contacted me one night to say that she'd been rung by Anne and believed that Anne was in America. Okay. And Anne had property in the Catskill Mountains in Upper State New York. So we've got it, perjury charges. Now we've got to get we've got an international arrest warrant, extradition warrant, and that was a, a long process to go through to get that. And in putting together the case um, in the last twelve months, it was one of the first times that a task force had been allocated a, a, a prosecutor from the department, uh, the director of public prosecutions. Very fortunate to have Caroline. Douglas, who became uh, Canicourt Judge Carolyn Douglas, uh, as the prosecutor. And for 12 months we worked with Carolyn and putting together the char- the types of charges, the perjury charges, to ensure that we could extradite people back, work closely with the Office of the Director of Public Prosecutions. And then um, with Sarah's information, what do you do? You told you that this woman might be in America. So we knew where the property was and whatever, so... The phone was picked up and, and a phone call made to the New York office of the FBI. And when the phone was picked up, the conversation went a bit like, now, don't think I'm a nut. I'm a detective from Victoria. I'm going to tell you a story and hopefully you can help us. And Hilda Kogut, who was a special agent in the FBI, who I came to know very well, she said later in the film that she could tell that it was real and that, you know, we wanted to get this woman. So eventually, uh, working with the FBI, uh, we'd work night shift at night and they, because when they were working during the day, it was our night time here and so forth. We were faxing documents. No, no such thing as PDF or email. We were faxing documents across and so forth, and picking up the phone, not the mobile phone, but the old office phone, working in that, in that type of situation. Eventually... Uh, one Sunday night, we'd arranged to be in the office at midnight when the FBI did a raid on the property in the Catskill Mountains and when doing the raid after doing a lot of surveillance, the FBI team arrested Anne and William Hamilton Byrne and took them to the local county jail where they then sat for a couple of months whilst they fought the extradition back to Australia until finally there was a murder in the cell that Bill was in and by then, Bill had said, I've had enough. We're going back. So they then waived their right to defend their the extradition order. And 
and fought it on the basis that she can't come back to Australia because she can't fly because she's got a bad heart. She's not well. So I just said to the FBI, we'll bring a doctor. Tough luck. So we went over with the inspector myself, the detective senior son, uh, a female detective and a female police doctor from Victoria. So the four of us went to the States and uh, went through the legal processes there, which took a few weeks. And then uh, it was the first time that I ever met Anne Hamilton Byrne. And William Hamilton Byrne was the first time I was on the... Uh, when the black van turned up at JFK Airport and the side door was slid, in, slid one way and there was this little old crumpled up woman, no makeup, no blonde wig that she always wore. I said to her, um, Anne Hamilton Byrne, my name's Lex the Man, um, oh yes, I've heard about you. You look a lot younger than what I thought you would be. And apart from those words and words of no comment, they're the only real words that Anne Hamilton Byrne ever spoke to me about. What were your initial, uh, when you saw her come out of that uh, van and you said she was a little crumpled up lady, um, what did you, apart from that, did you want to, I don't know, hit her or? <laughs> yeah, well, I, if I believe what the cults followers believed and what kept telling us, uh, you know, you'd think that, uh, that I was seeing Jesus Christ. But it was this little old crumpled up woman and I looked at her and I thought, you know, evil comes in very different formats, many varied formats. And the person that I was looking at personifies evil, and that's what she was. She was absolute evil. Um, and, you know, if I move forward, uh, you know, the day that she died, uh, you know, in, uh, in a nursing home in Melbourne, um, in the eastern suburbs of Melbourne, you know, was one of the uh, best days of my life, if I can say it, because um, um, she died. Now, I have no compassion for her whatsoever, none whatsoever. And I said that at the time when I said she can rot in hell. I think you would be very justified in feeling like that because you you have seen, uh, as you said, you've seen evil. Um, but you've seen uh, what that evil um, did to so many other people and damaged them, you know, for the rest of their lives. Not, and that's just the kids, uh, let alone yourself and the investigators. Uh, I think if anybody is justified in feeling like that, you are. Uh, what I did with the uh, with the with with the uh, the young with the children, of course, as I said before, you now uh, are now grown up adults, members of her own cult breaking up marriages, having cult having a cult member give up her two year old son to her to become her son, uh, and that and that and that boy never seeing his mother for eighteen years, um, you know the administration of drugs on people, getting people to buy things, you know, buy properties um, to lie for her, um, the damage that she caused in, in in the lives of so many people, and the treatment uh, that she allowed and did and carried out with regards to the children, and the authorities in Victoria at the time sat back and allowed it to happen out of not deliberately but through ignorance and not wanting to tackle something like this when it was raised, I think it was a forerunner, and I remember Peter Spence wrote a report in 1991 in the second year of the task force to say there should be a Royal Commission 
into the treatment of children through this. And years later when the then Prime Minister Gillard announced the Royal Commission on the Treatment of Children, I often sit back and wonder, had someone taken Peter's advice in 91, how many children would have been saved between 91 and 2007? You know, this horrendous crime, crimes, I should say, they were perpetrated, not, they're not some part of some fanciful cult that happens in the United, in the dark deeps of the United States of America through the religious belt and so forth. They actually happened here in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia. And that's why I'm happy to talk about this story because the only way that we can ensure that um, we can make sure that our authorities and a society maintains an awareness that this thing happens and, and, and it happens here is to talk about it and, and to make sure that, uh, you know, I've been asked many times, Narelle, could this happen again here? And I and my answer is always our safeguards are much better now. Uh, for example, you know, there was originally 27 adoption agencies, private adoption agencies when we started. I think there's now three or five now only. But these things, these things, the, the checks and balances today are much better, but that doesn't mean it still couldn't happen. We still have to be on our guard. Um, and, um, you know, it's it's when you understand the cruelty that happened, how people were violated, how people were abused, um, you know, who were members of the cult and so forth, you then get an understanding of how evil this woman was. Uh yeah, oh, I am. It's very, very uh, seldom I'm speechless, Lex. But what you've said today, uh, you're right. I just can't get my head around it. And unless I heard it from you, as you say, um, it's it's so hard to believe that you can't believe it. But there's there's so many um, oh so many emotions, but. What I there's so many uh, ways I admire you too, Lex. You and your investigators and your colleagues, but I admire the fact that, and am, am, am I right here that you didn't uh, take it to court because that meant that the kids would be basically abused again by having to give evidence at court, and you yeah. believe yeah. It, it was that wasn't probably, worth. It was probably one of the hardest. It was it was a point of discussion with Caroline Caroline Douglas, the prosecutor, and you know, do we want to put these kids through these circumstances once again? You know, there was no video evidence in those days. You couldn't give evidence separately in another building on video or so forth. And um, you know, some people may say, "Well, you should have," but but I took the view that for what the outcome would have been, it was it would have been wrong to put these children through these repeat experiences again. And the one thing that you learn as an investigator is that documents don't lie. People lie on documents. And so we had we had the perjury charge that was falsification of document of documents. And so um, we got we, we found her and, and she was arrested and we got her back before a court in Victoria and she said the words guilty. We didn't say the words guilty. So, you know, um, at the end of the day, um, in many ways, we busted the myth with her cult followers that she was actually Jesus Christ reincarnated. And 
you know, I remember saying to the to um, some journalists the day that they came and spoke to me about her death and how I felt, and I said, well, come and see me in three days, I suppose, see if she resurrects herself, and I was saying that tongue-in-cheek. But, but you know, I just um, I just said that I was so happy, and that might be to, to some of the people listening to this podcast might seem somewhat strange, but when you've seen evil, you've looked evil in the eye, you understand what evil has done, you then get an understanding of why you say things like she's in rotten hell, which you can. And, you know, Lex, I think I'm going to say thank you from everybody for what you did, but I'll probably embarrass you here. I don't use the word hero very often, and I think um, who we have spoken to today, you are a hero for what you did and how you have turned those kids' lives around to the point where, as you said, somebody like Ben Shendon, he can actually um, go on with life, um, find himself, you know, true love, a wife and kids, and that is because of you and your colleagues. So, yeah, um, Lex- and, and it was a team effort. So absolutely, you know, it was a, it was. Um, I was very fortunate, and. Can I just say I was very fortunate to meet a great group of young people that were able to help. Mm. I think they were more fortunate to meet you, Lex. So anyway, thank you so much for your time. And, um, yeah, I don't know what else to say, but thank you. Thank you, Neural. Hey, it's Narelle here again. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcasts as much as we enjoy putting them together. But to make sure you never miss an episode of Narelle Fraser Interviews, hit subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a rating and even a review. And please share it with all your friends too. And again, thanks for joining us. We have got some amazing stories to tell. So thanks again. See ya. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BolinBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.